to let go of your expectations. I think that's really important. And to open yourself up to the unexpected. Because really, when you let go of your expectations of what you think you're going to be and how it's going to be, then, my God, what can happen is really pretty fantastic. Margot Slattery, CEO of Sodexo, is the leading light on the podcast today. Margot is a warm, engaging woman, much in demand, not only because of her management expertise and career and life wisdom, but because of her willingness to play it forward. She wants to pave the way for other women to help them develop their leadership potential. And she's a firm believer in having diversity at the core of all business teams and decision making. She knows it works and that it helps the business to be more representative of the customer base. I'm Margot Slattery and I'm the Managing Director of Sodexo in Ireland and Northern Ireland. That's a big job. (laughs) How did you get to be Managing Director? Um, I could say I'm not quite sure, but... (laughs) Um, I think through a long career with Sodexo, I've been with Sodexo since about 1991 and working through the business and working through literally every aspect of the business and um, being somebody who was seen to have potential, a potential for development and leadership and then going through an accelerated program of leadership. So it's been a long journey, but a great journey and a fantastic journey. And I've learned a lot through that. So let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, Tell sure. me about where you grew up, about your education and how, what you did before Sodexo days. Um, so I grew up in County Limerick. I'm from a place called uh, Bruff in County Limerick, one of three children uh, and born to a farming family. So my earliest and most formative years were brought up in, in I suppose, the midst of, 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 a, of a really busy family life and a little bit different from some other people that my parents were both at home every day. So we had, a yeah, I suppose, the fantastic advantage of coming home to two parents in the home every day. We only wished they would go out to work. Um, I went to school in the local convent school from where I went. I went to the FCJs in Brough and County Limerick, which was fantastic as well. Very formative because having to be lucky enough to go to school in a time when we got people who devoted themselves to giving a lot of the their time and their energy to, I suppose, the betterment of us as human beings, not only just for our intellectual education. And I left uh, Brough in 19, I think it was 85, I finished my, my secondary education. And I laterally went on to the Galway Mayo Institute of Technology. And I did a chef's course there for two years. Um, really did that because I loved food and cooking and I came from a background where my mum had done home ec and, uh, and hotel management and was very interested in that so it was in the blood so to speak and I thought God I really enjoy this and it's quite nice and um, I went on for a couple of years to have a career working as a chef in the hotel and catering industry and came back uh, I suppose travelled for a little bit and then came back to Ireland in 1990, the end of 1990, which was a quite a gloomy time in Ireland. And I came back because I was kind of on that cusp of do I go to the States or Australia or do I come back to Ireland? I thought I'll come back for a while. And I uh, saw that perhaps it was time for a change in my career. So um, I got a job actually with Sodexo. It was known as Gardner Merchant back then in around the beginnings of 1991. I went back to college in DIT and called Brewer Street and I did a degree in hotel and catering management by nights, which was quite interesting. 
And um, why, since, why was that quite interesting? It was quite interesting because, um, you know, you have to work that much harder when you're trying to work a job during the day. So I had a job, for instance, that started at six o'clock in the morning. I was working at the Bank of Ireland at Bagot Street and I was a pastry chef when I started. And, uh, you know, I was having to kind of drag myself to college at six o'clock in the evening, have to find that, uh, you know, it's, it was it was very much I was self-perpetuating. I was putting myself forward. I was very much sort of trying to find that wherewithal and I was paying for myself as well. So, you know, it was it was it was it was a challenging moment in my life. And I was going back almost when people were much younger than me and uh, people had a different sort of trajectory. So I had to sort of do a lot of self-examination. And it was also an incredibly interesting time in Ireland because if you don't remember, but around around that 1991, Mary Robinson was elected president and I'd come from exactly. And I'd come from sort of County Limerick where, you know, it was very much, uh, you know, a very paternalistic type society, not necessarily saying in my family, but around the around the piece. And uh, it was very interesting to come back to an Ireland that was going through change and there was a kind of a glimmer, a glimmer of hope and something different. So I was going through college, putting myself forward, thinking about what I might do with the rest of my career. I was also living and sharing a house with some fantastic people um, and some girls I'd been in school with and they were all doing interesting things like one of them was working in the National Women's Council and she was working with Frances Fitzgerald and there was lots of you know exciting things happening at that time. Wonderful. Yeah. So then you, how did you get from doing your catering course did you or sorry your management course were you actually in Sodexo and you weren't in Sodexo at that stage? So I stage. joined Sodexo kind of as, a, as I did that and uh, I started off I went from and again interesting for me in that I had sort of uh, I was graduated in the chef world and done okay at that and was earning a decent enough salary for the first time and then I started with Sodexo as a as the, I think at the time I said it was a junior 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 manager it was certainly quite quite low down the ranks and uh, I started off at a much lower salary than I'd been on but I ne- I, I saw that I needed to get back in and to work my way through so it was kind of in conjunction with my doing my hotel and catering um, diploma and degree laterally and um it started, that was, what, 25 years ago now. But you must have brought all the experience that you'd had from chefing and pastry chefing into this business, which is, tell me about the business of Sodexo. What do they do? Um, well, Sodexo in those early days, if I take you sort of on that journey, Sodexo in the early days was formerly Gardner Merchant, then taken over by Sodexo on a year around 2000. So I, I collectively say Sodexo. So when I joined, it was actually Garden Merchant. And in essence, it was very much a food company at that stage. It was a catering contract catering company, providing services to some of the top companies in the country, um, but mostly food and hospitality. And I suppose what's changed over the last 10, 15 years is that Sodexo has seen the opportunity to grow and develop those services and now provides anything up to 150 services in the sites where we provide where we've been or we may develop or continue to do so so they can be anything from landscaping technical maintenance mechan electricity you know um uh, I'm trying full to think. services full not services, just food yeah, anymore yeah. oh absolutely yeah. um and i suppose the core thing we we think about is that if the organisation that we're providing services, let them concentrate on what they're doing really well. So if it's a pharma, maybe it's making some medication or making medical instruments, let them do that and we'll do all the other things so that they don't have to worry about those things on a day-to-day basis. 
functional specialization, exactly. I recall, yeah. from years ago. Exactly. Yeah. So how did you work your way up through the ranks in Sodexo from the junior, junior, junior piece? I guess I was always very ambitious and, and that came from the fact that my parents um, always sort of brought us up to believe that we could do anything we wanted to do. And I had a huge sense of confidence and self-belief. And, uh, you know, my father was a very funny man. He He's dead now some years, but I remember him sort of looking at, he came up to Dublin for a weekend with my mum and I was driving them around and he went back down and told a neighbour that I had the command of Dublin in my hand because I could drive around Dublin. He thought that driving around Dublin was having made it. Um, but that sort of belief, I suppose, made me feel that I could see sort of the end in, in view. And I looked at, I suppose, the different types of roles that were there and I thought, I can do that. So I went to the next role, did that for a year or two and thought, yeah, you know what? I can probably do the next one up and just kept applying and kept moving forward. I also happened to be lucky that I was mentored and sponsored by some people who really saw my potential and, you know, supported by people as well. But there was, I would say, a 50-50. There was being supported, but there was also sheer ambition and drive. And when the word no was said, I didn't take it as an answer. I just kept pushing forward anyhow. Yeah. I think I think Katrina Hallen said that sometimes people just sit in a corner and wait to be noticed that you really have to put yourself out there. Would you agree or what would you what would your advice to be to, to women who want to who have that ambition and sometimes are afraid of it? Oh, I think you've just got to push forward. And um, we've been brought up and maybe it's certainly in my time, in my generation, I'm 48 now, you know, it was a lot about being seen and not heard and that sort of thing. And maybe that is in our psyche a little bit. I think you actually have to be heard and I think you have to push yourself forward. Now, there's an element of finding that 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 middle position without being too pushy um, and knowing when's the time is right to do that. So it's being able to read the, the writing that's not on the wall and being able to kind of pick up some of the subtleties of that. But yeah, I do think you have to push yourself forward. And it's not always easy for women because we don't understand the subtleties of power and the way it works. I, I think so anyway. No, but I pr- probably one of the key learnings, if I'm looking back and reflective, even in the last couple of years in my role, is that there are we're just different. So it's, you know, it's neither. Yes, gender is really important, but knowing that our difference is part of what makes us special. Um, and I think women approach things in a different manner. So we have, a, I think, in the main, a lot better network in a way that is a much more informal type network, whereas I think men have more of a formal network. Women know lots of other women, and as they get comfortable with those women, and by comfortable I mean somebody that they know more than just somebody that, you know, they know them to have a conversation with, um, then they'll feel comfortable to ask them something. They'll look forward to be... Um, you know, to have a reciprocal relationship, to help, to support. And I think we we approach things from that perspective. Like I would never ask somebody from a cold card kind of way of coming at something, ring up a stranger and ask them to do something for me. I need to get to know somebody first and then I'll feel comfortable to do that. And then likewise, I'll want to make sure that I help and support them in something that I might be able to do. So it's just a different way of approaching it. And do you think work, you know, when women are around a boardroom table or a meeting table and there's a spread of men and women, do women work differently in meeting situations from your experience? I think that women, my experience and really my experience of the last couple of years has been that women are usually very time bound. They really need to kind of get to the next phase. They want you to 
bring, you know, the synopsis, they want to sum it up fairly quickly, they want to discuss for a certain period of time and then they want to move on. Um, I'm not saying that men are the total opposite of that, but I think that some of the pressures that people have about getting out at a certain hour or whatever might that means that they need to make you best use of time. So that's one thing I perhaps notice. And then I think they'll ask some of the questions that aren't always the obvious questions. So again, that sort of thinking and, you know, because I suppose we have to do so many things in our lives and multitask that you think about things. I see women who think, oh, you know, what about that? And we haven't thought about that. And then that comes out into the discussion as well. So I just think it's a different approach and complementary quite often to, I think the gender mix is, is really important. I would hate to work in an organisation that was really unbalanced and, and I mean favourably unbalanced towards women. I would I would dislike it if it was 70% women. I think the balance is important. And do you think diversity is important around the table? Because, you know, when the one of the criticisms that they made, I think somebody was telling me they were on an IMI course and they said, you know, it's pale, male, grey and stale, like usually men in suits over 50. And yet, you know, your, your customer base is going to be much more diverse than that. Is it important to reflect your customer base when you're in business, particularly at board level? Oh, Angie, I think absolutely 100 percent. When we go in to present to organisations and when I go into a room and I see, you know, a mix of genders and everything, and then I see some of my competitors coming in and there's all one or the other. I think you have you've misread the situation. And likewise, for us, sometimes if it is pale male and stale organisation, then we might have to think about how we approach it as well. But to have actually done the time and to have done the work to understand that. Um, and I think that so many of our education, our further educational uh, institutions tend to even use all the, you know, the gender stereotypes all the time. It's something I've had to challenge quite a bit when I've been going to college saying to organisations, you know, why do you keep talking about the money, the power and authority being in the male gender? Why do they keep talking about, for instance, all directors and senior teams or expertise is always in the male gender? And when it comes to the more sort of softer, fluffy stuff, then that's in the female gender. I come across in this organization and in what you know I suppose I'm probably one of the challengers of it here but in in the facilities management world um, people refer to engineers as males and they refer to receptionists as females all the time and I quite often say to people do you know them and they'll say no and they'll say well how did you know it was a man (laughs) or how did you know that was a woman so I think we have to challenge that a lot and it's 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 coming from what people always knew and understood and they they don't even think to correct it. Is it important to avoid that sort of groupthink at every level and to always challenge uh, in meeting situations just to step back and, you know, step back and just think a little bit? I think it's incredibly important because the generation particularly that are coming up with the way the the millennials, um, they just don't think that way. They have just such a very different way of approaching it. So I think for those of us in leadership, we absolutely have to challenge and challenge the way we do things and challenge, you know, for instance, things like if we have opinions, in, you know, in, among our team or, you know, something about engagement or whatever is, you know, don't just accept what we're given on paper. Don't just look at the easy answers. We've to ask some very hard questions of ourselves. And I think as leaders, we've got to do that all the time. So I like having um, and I like having some agitators in the team who kind of push the buttons and ask some difficult questions. The art, of, of course, is to be able to make sure that, that that gets balanced and that you're able to make sure that the agitators don't take over and that you've got enough that, you know, you don't lose the people who are uh, not the agitators as well. So there's there's an art in sharing a meeting around how we do that. I mean, that's even interesting, that word, the amount of times I get people talking about the chairman. And it's not that I'm that tied up in it, but I mean, in the truth, 
it's the person who chairs it. Gender is. It's, it's easier just to say chair, anyway, yeah, isn't exactly, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And do you like chairing? Did did that come easily to you, or is it a skill that gets learned? And do you polish and improve on that that skill of chairing meetings? Well, I I definitely think it's a skill, and that's improved. And you know, mea culpa here. I'm learning and learning and learning every day, um, because you you start in, you know meetings and you you think this is the agenda and how you want things to go. But the truth is, it all depends on who your audience are, what their needs and their requirements. So it needs a huge amount of perhaps research beforehand and you need to understand what's important for people, what's important for them and what's important for you and how do you balance that and then making sure that the meetings are productive. That's the most important thing. I know certainly I'm disaffected when I go to um, meetings and they're really not very productive and I feel that the time hasn't been well used and I think generally I see out there that people are getting like that as well. They want to make sure if they're spending time in a meeting that you know they're getting what they want from it or at least contributing in a way that's very helpful. Now, tell me about education. You're a great believer in continuous professional development and you've gone off and done a master's too, I believe. Tell me about that. Um, well, I think I needed, I, I needed or was thinking about doing a master's needed because it was kind of troubling me for quite a while and I wanted to do it. And uh, I had struggled with trying to find the time and make it happen in my life. And uh, I started about three years ago, actually, in the IMI, and I did a thing called the MPP, which is we were number 39. We were kind of so 39 different groups have done it over the years. And um, it's very much built around reflective practice and being a reflective practitioner um, in your organization. And I found it absolutely fantastic. So I was tasked to really, I suppose, do something quite different, uh, very different to the normal MBA type uh, path to go and look at my organization, to look at a change process that I was leading and to kind of come back inside myself and my team and the organization and to be that practitioner and to, to write critically a lot of the time about what we were doing and doing well and not so well. So I found it fantastic. Um, I had in the end to sort of uh, produce a somewhere between 55,000 and 60,000 wow. uh, dissertation, which I did, and I got it all finished and graduated last December. Great. So it was fantastic. Um, and it's given me a real hunger for, for continuous education. I had thought about perhaps doing a diploma in corporate governance, which I'm very much interested in, but I needed to take a little break. I was I was literally starting into one last September as I was finishing the, the last process, and I thought, no, take a break for a year or two. So that's something I'm probably going to do next. And I'm very interested in that whole idea of governance and how do we, for instance, make governance just part of daily practice in organisations. Not so much that governance is uh, stifling, but just governance is, I think, empowering and, and when we all understand how to make it work well. How do you mean that it's empowering? Well, if you really understand uh, how to run an organisation, you understand, if you like, the right practice, you understand, and I'm talking for the whole of a group, and people understand um, what is what is perhaps do I use that word legal what is the what is the kind of I suppose the way to do things that actually helps an organization be the best that it can be and everyone understands that then I think we get the very best from an organization whereas if we do things from a perspective or a lens of uh, trying to always uh, be greedy or we have to do this you know whereas when we're doing it from a point of view of actually trying to get the best of everything and everybody and having some good um, 
not rules because I don't think I think rules are then to be to be flexed not broken but to be flexed but, but when we have some clear understanding how we can work around things and delegations then I think it's quite healthy How do you bring people along with you on that journey though so that they don't resent the new rules and regulations How do you bring people along? Well probably I, I always think about everything from my own experience and my own experience from right when I started in my career um, was that when I'm communicated with well then I buy into something and when I'm communicated badly you get my resistance and I put up a wall Um, so I think it's really important to make sure that people are communicated well they understand why we are doing things and not to do things for the sake of um, things I think organisations have a huge um, capacity to be really different and to make for change but my god they can get it so wrong and usually it's getting it so wrong by coming up with something and saying that's the system and we have to do it that way whereas it takes time to actually define what what it is we want sometimes working together as a group communicating well looking at something and saying well that's what we want as an outcome but maybe we'll change that a bit because of these circumstances so it's that involvement and making sure everybody feels that they have a, a say in it and then making a decision is listening a big part of that absolutely um, and I perhaps say some of my negative the experiences where I've been negatively affected is when you feel not listened to, when you feel that your opinion isn't taken into account. And again, that's knowing when to measure that. You know, you can't speak for all of 60 or 70 percent of, of a meeting, but it's about being able to make sure that you listen, you're listened to and that that balance is there. Tell me about your work outside of Sodexo. I mean, there's probably aren't enough hours in the day, <laughs> but I know you're a busy woman outside of Sodexo as well. Um, are you on some boards and how does that work? Um, well, outside of Sodexo, um, over the last number of years, I've tried to make sure that I have a do some things that actually help people, that support some of the things that I feel passionately about and that I'm trying to make a difference, I guess. Now, all that sounds very, uh, all very wonderful. I'm, I'm certainly not very any noble. saint, very noble. Yeah. But um, so, for instance, LGBT um, inclusion, diversity and inclusion is very important to me. So I've been involved for the last number of years in the board of Glen, um, which I find fantastic because I'm looking and helping form, if you like, some of the things we're going to do for the future. Then gender is and, and gender and both sides balancing gender and making sure we have good representation in business is very important. So I'm involved in things like the Professional Women's Network um, and involved in mentoring um, people as well. So there's a program called Going for Growth that um, yeah, I've got involved. Yeah, yeah so um, I'm mentoring now seven people from that. I did six last year as well. So it's a bit of pay it forward, you know, trying to make sure that I give back something for what I got as well. And then apart from that, I suppose I'm involved in things like going to the 30% club and various symposiums and things that actually happen and trying to get a, more than anything else an understanding of what the zygist of the moment is and what's going to be coming down the line because there's a responsibility when you lead a team we have a team of about 2,000 people actually just over that now yeah. yeah and uh, there's a responsibility I think to understand what's going to happen mm. so I'm yeah, doing the budget the yeah well. and I'm doing the budgets for next year so you do the financial budgets but you can't do those in isolation it's a bit like building a building and not knowing what the next you know, the next corner of the buildings. I've got to know what's coming down the line, what kind of things are going to face us with the people, what kind of retention tasks we're going to have, how is it going to be around attracting talent, who will want to work for this kind of organisation. I mean, FM and uh, quality of life, which is very much at the heart of Sodexo, is really, really becoming a really, um, a real differentiator out there. What's FM? 
So facilities management. Okay. And Thanks. you have a thing called integrated facilities management. That's where you, you sort of, yeah. So that's when you look at a, one company perhaps doing it all as one bundle. So you're integrating. So instead of, for instance, having one provider for A, B, C and D, you have the one company doing it all. But that means that you sort of move people between various tasks and you have people who have an overview of all of the building rather than just one task. So it's not so silo focused. And we're obviously recognizing now that organizations like us can come in and really improve the the terms and conditions and the, the building and the feel around what it actually might like to be at work. And therefore, we can have an impact on things like retention for some of our clients. So we're even in a world now where we're being paid on outputs rather than inputs. So we might get paid, for instance, on things like, did we help them retain people? Was their employee engagement scores higher? Things like that that are not traditional to the world we've been in, which was where you were paid a fee or a, a certain sum every month. So as a leader, you've got to kind of be on top of what that's what that's about. So it's an exciting time, isn't it? Yeah. yeah what about, um, you know, you just talked about the feel of an organisation. I know I was listening to a lovely woman, um, Paz Madri Warrior. She came over and spoke at the Web Summit two years ago and she said that they're trying to get more young women into coding and engineering, but they come into the organisation full of hope. And they're there five or six years and then they leave because they look up, they look around and they don't see any other women. They don't see any role models. Um, how important is it that we have role models for women and that the feel of the place is inclusive for women as well as men? Well, I think role models full stop are incredibly important. Um, I probably have taken even a focus on this from being LGBT in the sense that, you know, when I would have started in my business career, I didn't really know anybody who was. And, and, and it was a real negative f- for me for quite a while. The same around women. And I think for, for young men now coming through an organisation as well. So I think it's important to see people who mirror some of the other things, who look and feel and act like you. Um, but that's not to make sh- you know, the, 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 the quest of leadership is to make sure that we find balance in that and not have bias but to make sure that there are role models and there's difference. And I suppose the word I come back to all the time is around inclusion. So it's good knowing what's diversity, you know, what's diverse and what diversity is. But the most important thing is to be inclusive and to be inclusive is having role models, having difference and, and having a different way of thinking and going back to your group think, not having group think and having people who kind of push the, the boundaries a little bit. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> did you ever suffer from imposter of course, syndrome? Of course I did, and I do on a daily basis. Um, I had I had a situation a number of years ago where uh, very kindly drew business in the community. This is just an example. I was asked along with um, a lady called Bernie Gray uh, to go along to uh, a session with Al Gore and Mary Robinson uh, around climate justice, and there was a and we were the two ladies. They wanted two ladies who were representing Irish business, and we were sitting there, Bernie and I. I'm certainly speaking for myself in the Marion Hotel with about 15 or 16 leaders from all around the world and I'm thinking what am I doing here and so that happens a lot from time to time or particularly if you're asked to speak of things I spoke recently at something around chambers around leadership and I'm thinking you know there's an amazing leader sitting out there and I'm thinking what am I got to tell them but then of course what happens is when you when you settle down and you talk about your experience you know that it's experiences that other people have and the more times you do that um, the it does go away and it lessens a little bit. But yeah, I, I, I get it just like everybody else. Now you mentioned the word bias there. Unconscious bias is a very trendy thing to be talking about. Now, I know a lot of companies talk about it, but they really don't do anything about it. They might have somebody in for a day and then it's gone. It's off the agenda. Do you build unconscious bias training into any of your work or how does that work? 
Yeah, I mean, we've probably been um, sort of trying to flood the flag here for Sodexo, but this is something we would have probably talked about five, six years ago. So you're way ahead of the curve on that one. Yeah, we would have trained, I would have done a training course as would have a number of our our people in the business. Like, for instance, all of our managers do a one-day training program called Spirit of Inclusion and bias is put into that and trying to get people to understand, for instance, even the iceberg and all the different things that they may not even be aware of. I've certainly experienced that kind of bias and I've experienced when it's there and when it's not there and what that is actually like. Um, I think it's incredibly important because it isn't until you actually know that you have bias and the truth is everybody has it. It's not until you actually know, really understand that that you can then perhaps start to think differently. So I think differently now around being a leader, around thinking, you know, I don't need people who are all like me. And I was speaking with a colleague a little earlier on we were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, just because we work a certain way doesn't mean that the way somebody else works isn't as effective. And I probably used to think that way because I, I wanted people who were like me and now I think differently around that. But I just want to finish up with maybe three pieces of advice that you could offer to other women who have ambitions to lead or who want to go further in their career. What would those pieces of advice be? OK, well, um, I think the very first one is to sort of strike out there, don't be afraid. Um, what's the worst that can happen? Uh, a friend said to me one time when we were talking about perhaps looking at a business, she said, well, it's only the cost of a car. You know, it's, the truth is, so what's the worst that can happen? You know, somebody doesn't like you, you'll get another job, you'll, get, you'll move on. Um, I think that uh, the second area I would talk is to think about yourself and everything that you do. And if you put your, your real self and your, you know, your feelings, your emotions and don't suppress them, because I think every every level you get to demands a different you. And I think that's an interesting one to think about because, you know, different stages of your life. I'm in my 40s now. I have one parent dead, one not so really unwell. That's demanding a very different me and my empathy is different and it's a different time. And I'm 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 a leader of 2000 people. So that's asking different things of me. So it might have been different when I was 20, 30 and it might be different in five years time. And I suppose the last one I think about is to let go of your expectations. I think that's really important and to open yourself up to the unexpected. Because really, when you let go of your expectations of what you think you're going to be and how it's going to be, then, my God, what can happen is really pretty fantastic. I would never have believed, for instance, about being out as a, as a gay woman would have actually been such a positive thing to be. And I spent ages hiding all of that and thinking that, you know, if people knew it would stop me. And in actual fact, it's probably been one of the most positive uh, liberating things I've ever done. So I think letting go of, of those kind of expectations and being really, really just being in a space where you kind of think, let's see what happens and go with the zygist a little bit, I think is important. The marriage referendum last year was an amazing day, I think, an amazing weekend, really. I think everybody was just felt so much better. And even seeing everybody, you know, in that home to vote thing, it was just an amazing weekend. Oh. I mean, you were heavily involved with that, I know, as well. Tell me a little bit about that before we wrap. Well, I think, like like yourself, Angie, I would probably say that it was the most amazing event and probably one of the most amazing events of my life. But my my amazing, or my, my view about that, I suppose, guess, comes from the perspective that I was so proud of Ireland. I felt so proud of the difference we'd made. So when I remember back to 1990-ish there, when I'm talking about coming back to, to dull, gra- dark, grey Dublin, and very, very oppressive Dublin and, and Ireland, um, and, and, you know, how my mum's generation were brought up and the, and the place of people, and I look at the children of the nation, all the things that were different about us, and I look at what we're like today. Um, yeah, 
we haven't got it 100% perfect and there's lots to do. But the fact that Ireland just opened it up and sort of became really stood up and I think held her her, her head in, in the nation and the world was amazing. Mm-hmm. So I think going into 2016 now, we can say 100 years on, God, we're radically different and we're not bound by those old fashioned kind of things we used to have. Mm-hmm. So, no. So from that perspective, I really, really was just... So full of joy. I thought if I if I if I go now, if life ends now, I've died happy. <laughs> I think the whole country opened its heart. Yeah. yeah. And it felt like that. I mean, that that Saturday, I think it was the 23rd and we were going to the count and all of that sort of thing. And my mother-in-law and people were with us and like, I mean, they were full of joy. They were dancing around the place. Now, these are people who five years or 10 years ago wouldn't have felt like that. Mm-hmm. And they kind of got this chance to come out of the cocoon that they'd been in and, you know, talking about things like from wearing headscarves and looking at some of the things that had been very oppressive in their lives when they were growing up, um, they felt this joy. So I think everyone got a kind of a, a fairy dust, a sprinkle of fairy dust, so to speak. That's a lovely way of putting it. I think particularly for a lot of older women, it's remembering, you know, being churched after having a yeah. baby and being told, you know, how you could or couldn't have your family. It was like, nah, it's our world now. Yeah, and I, and I think for both, you know, I feel really supported by both genders here in my organisation and in my working life. So for both men and women, it's been a time of of real change. And you see people now, everyone, you know, for instance, my male colleagues are much more happy to talk about their kids and going home and getting home at a decent hour and everything. And I think everything in this kind of society has had a bit of a stir around and, uh, and, and, and it's almost like it's a new recipe, so to speak. So going back to my cooking heritage in the beginning. That was Margot Slattery of Sodexo. Join us next time for another fascinating interview with a leading woman. And remember, if you want to get in touch with suggestions or other names of fabulous women interviewees, or you would like to hear a particular topic discussed, do get in touch by email to info at womeninleadership.ie or via the website womeninleadership.ie, where there's a whole back catalogue of women that we've interviewed in the past that you really would like to hear from. If you'd like to sponsor the programme, we'd love to hear from you. And you can reach us through the website womeninleadership.ie or email us at info at womeninleadership.ie. Till the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti and all the podcast team here, goodbye and take care. <laughs>